Welcome to Dubs OT, your weekly Warriors podcast on thesportsvirus.com. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Woodson and Joe Castellano. Well, on this week's podcast, I thought we would uh, take a little bit of a different turn here uh, rather than talk about the games as we've been doing with the Warriors. And we'll get back at it uh, here at the end of the month. Uh, But today we're going to talk about a book that was fascinating. I had a chance to read it. It's about Steve Kerr. And we are welcoming in the author of the book, an award-winning sports writer who's been a writer for the Los Angeles Times, ESPN.com, NBA.com, SportsIllustrated.com, NBA TV, and the Sacramento Bee. And I went to college with this guy at the University of Southern California. We actually were writers together for the Daily Trojan. Scott Howard Cooper is our guest to talk about his book, Steve Kerr, A Life. Scott, how are you doing? And this book's coming out in June. I'm very excited about it. Uh, Tell us about the trials and tribulations of writing a book like this. Well, it was great fun. I hope that um, that really comes through to people who read it, that they they feel the excitement and and the energy, because I really enjoy doing it. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this was an unusual time to do a book, uh, especially a sports book, when uh, you had a lot of people out there talking about the stuff that really matters. But I had started on this long before the world went off the rails, and we kind of were determined to finish it. And I was fortunate to have a great team in New York with, uh, with uh, HarperCollins and William Morrow as the publishers, and we're really excited about it. Uh, a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of effort, but a lot of fun. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was telling Ray after our last podcast, actually uh, not on the podcast itself, but uh, I was telling him about when I was at the Daily Trojan and, and you were writing about USC sports. I mean, there were people there that you just knew were going to make it big. Paul Verkamen, who's now with CNN, Mark Gill, who, I mean, the last I checked, he, he was a movie producer. He was the president, I think, of uh, Miramax at one point. Uh, and then you, I mean, I just always thought that you were going to uh, do great things, you know, covering sports. And Ray, of course, uh, was a big UCLA fan as a young boy. Uh, and you had a chance to cover UCLA. And that kind of, you know, has a parallel here because of Steve Kerr being a ball boy with UCLA. So I would think that uh, kind of made it a little bit easier uh, writing about him as a youngster. He was a ball boy and he desperately wanted to go to UCLA. That's one of the mm-hmm. interesting parts about Steve's backstory, I think a lot of people know it, but maybe some people don't. He was a guy that was close to invisible in Los Angeles high school basketball when he was at Palisades. He's the first guy to say that he wasn't very good. Now, I think he, I think he's underselling himself a little bit. He wasn't bad. He was just a good local player, but not, not the kind of guy that drew much attention on the radar compared to some of the other superstars of L.A. hoops and didn't get any attention at all from UCLA and was close to going to Cal State Fullerton when this very flukish moment, uh, Arizona had a bad program and a brand-new coach, some guy named Lute Olson, <laughs> and had just been there for a couple months and just had an available scholarship and Lute goes to Cal State Long Beach to watch some basically glorified pickup games. They were just summer league games. And he's working on his next recruiting class when he sort of sees this this guy out there and he says, Ah, you know, he can not fast, not big. He's not gonna 
dunk on you at all, uh, but boy, he plays smart and really with a lot of composure. And you can see a lot of leadership out there. And he finally asked somebody, he said, who is that guy? And they said, that's Steve Kerr. He's from Palisades. And he hasn't gotten any attention from any college at all. And by good fortune, Lute had a ton of connections in Southern California high school basketball because he had worked there. He had been a college coach there, and he had been a high school coach there as well. And so he gets interested in this guy, and they set up a game for Steve to play in at Palisades High School, and Lute ends up offering a scholarship. And the rest is, is history. What, what was, uh, Scott, his, his arc at Arizona? I mean, it wasn't a case where he was playing a lot early in his career. And, uh, as I understand it, there were some you know, difficulties on the court. And then, of course, off the court, he had a great family tragedy. So, so all this is being thrown at him at age 18 and 19. I mean, you know, maybe explain a little bit how he, how he handled that, how he had to handle that at a, a very young age. Well, we, everybody saw Steve's maturity right away. Uh, it was impossible to miss. Uh, as we just talked about, he showed up. He's not one of the big stars. Uh, Lute Olson, his first choice, he really wanted Kevin Johnson to come and play guard. And KJ, of course, goes to Cal. And then he run Reggie Miller, and Reggie goes to UCLA and ends up with this slow guy who, who just gets crushed in pickup games. Steve Kerr shows up to Tucson and, before official practices start, is playing pickup games with his new teammates, his future teammates. And these guys are grumbling. They're, oh, my God, this guy can't play. He just couldn't even keep up in, in the pickup games. And by his good fortune, Arizona sucked. <laughs> and so Steve kind of had to play. He just didn't have that many guys. And he's playing a little bit, and he ends up working his way into the rotation. And then, as you mentioned, then there's this tragedy. Uh, January 1984, his father is the... Uh, the head of American University in Beirut, and is assassinated. And the unimaginable emotions that must be going on in Steve's, in Steve's mind. He loved his dad. They were very close. They had a great relationship. Um, and then he loses his dad, and he, you know, Lute says, why don't you take some time? take a couple days, take a couple weeks, do what you need to do. And Steve says, I'm going to stay. I need to play. He, basketball helped save him. It pulled him through that terrible time. He didn't feel like he could go all the way to Beirut uh, for some of the services, and he knew that there would be others that would follow in New Jersey, where his dad grew up, and at UCLA, where his dad worked uh, for many years in the political science department. So he would attend those but he was determined to stay. The first game back is uh, about two days later against Arizona State, and he lights the place up. And the whole town basically adopts him. Uh, they sort of rallied behind the guy that was going through this tragedy. Um, they do a moment of silence before the game on the court, and Steve is in tears. 
and then he gets put into the game as a reserve and starts hitting everything in sight, and it's one of those nights, 1984, and people are still talking about it in Tucson, in Phoenix as well, because they played Arizona State. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of, one of those forever moments, you talk to people who are there, and they talk about that, that feeling of chills going down your spine, that Steve had this composure, had this maturity. And as I said, those days told you a lot about the kind of guy that he was and the person he would become. To have such composure uh, and such maturity, he handled everything. It's it's really quite a story. And uh, I know this part from having worked with uh, one of his teammates at Arizona, Tom Tolbert, worked with, uh, with Tom for many years uh, at KMBR. And the flip side of that uh, experience for Steve was, and I believe this was at Arizona State, some of the things that the fans there were chanting at Steve, and I won't, you know, give it the dignity of repeating some of this stuff, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't blame any player for just for just breaking down. It was really cruel, and I remember Tom saying it was one of the few times he felt like going up into the stands and, and taking on some of these fans, and yet he had to endure that as well, and, uh you know, this, God forbid anybody should have to have that that trial by fire to prove what what they're made of. But that's exactly what he did. One of the all-time low-class moments uh, in any sports, not just college sports. Uh, you understand it's a rivalry yeah. game, Arizona and Arizona State. Um, understand the frustration of it used to be uh, Arizona State owned Arizona the state and the school in basketball for many years, uh, but the Wildcats turned it around and took control, so there was a lot of frustration in Tempe and Phoenix. But you're right. They went places you just don't go. Uh, the yeah. stuff he shouted at Stephen, it's in the book. Uh, you just don't do that, and it was terrible. And it fired Steve up in a way that he rarely gets fired up. He's got a temper. He will get mad. But that was completely different. Uh, his his feeling going into games was always to get other people involved. He's he's the ultimate team player, selfless, uh, trying to run the offense as as a point guard. Uh, but that night, he said he took the court wanting the ball. He wanted to shoot. He wanted to get in the face of uh, Arizona State fans. And we should point out also, uh, it was it was about a dozen, maybe 15 or 20. It was not the whole crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was basically a hand, a little more than a handful of people. Uh, Steve took, went to great lengths afterwards to say he, this is nothing about the, the ASU program, the athletic department, the players. He, he said that he had no issues with them. But, boy, you're right. There was no question uh, what, the, what some of the fans did uh, was beyond classless. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you had great detail of the time that he spent in Cairo, and uh, you know you built it up really very well in the book uh, as far as the relationship you know his parents had and and the family. Uh, and one of the parts I really got a kick out of was when you talked about uh, Steve Kerr scoring forty points in a game against a roster of Egyptian men in their twenties. Uh, you know, this is when he was living in in Cairo, and they were actually offering him a monthly salary, a car, and an apartment. But the family decided against that because of his 
his uh, status as an amateur player in college. Tell us about just getting a lot of that information and going into the the detail that you did. Uh, you know, when Steve was a young kid before he even got to college. The research was a lot of fun. Um, it was conversations with people. It was going back and looking at uh, old newspaper clips because that's something that Steve has talked about uh, himself many times. And I got to say, uh, I was greatly aided. Uh, his mom is a very talented writer, uh, and she had a lot of these stories. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His sister uh, wrote a book. Uh, his mother in law wrote a book, a very talented writer. Um, and so this is the kind of access that you just don't normally get to have that many family members <laughs> writing a book is very unusual. And um, it, that was a challenge to, to piece together some of his early life um, just because there, there's, there's no way to sort of reenact what it was like to spend time in Beirut because that's not the Beirut that we know now. It obviously yeah. has changed dramatically from the 1960s and 70s and even the early 80s when, when he was last there. Yeah. Um, but that's part of what makes him so interesting. Is The way I pitched it uh, to the publishers when we initially talked about it was that I think it's the story of a guy who's had a unique career but a fascinating life. And I think that's what makes Steve so interesting, is not just that he's been successful in both of his uh, chosen careers, playing basketball and coaching basketball, but it's been the experiences off the court, some that we've talked about, like with his dad and how he's had to handle different adversities. But it's also how this young kid handled uh, being born in Beirut, and he obviously doesn't remember those earliest days, but he had been back to Beirut, he'd been to Cairo, he'd been... You know, imagine one day being in upscale Southern California, Pacific Palisades, <laughs> and the next year you're floating along the Red Sea. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, quite a you're hanging yeah. out. <laughs> you're hanging out, climbing the pyramids, and you're doing the, all this stuff that m- most of us cannot comprehend, just because it was such a different world. It's it's so uh, it, it's not even like as familiar as, as something like if you're saying I grew up in Europe or something like that, to be in the Middle East in the 1970s and 1980s was was definitely different, and it gave him a great appreciation. Uh, when Steve talks about his experiences around the world, those have genuinely shaped him. There's an openness to him. There's a desire to learn about other people and other cultures and people who have different uh, backgrounds. Um, uh, those are all the things that have gone into making him the coach and the man he is now. And I think that's one of the things that makes him so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating reading about uh, you know his story uh, as a person. And you think about him as a basketball player. And as you mentioned, being sort of the underdog guy uh, going into college, same situation going into the NBA. I mean, he had a really poor final four game i mean that was the you know the pinnacle of your college career get to the final four and then he doesn't have his best game uh just tell us about you know getting from that point to actually making it in the nba because it really didn't look like he was going to be the type of player that would at first until his senior year at arizona uh, all he was thinking about was probably being athletic director 
uh, maybe being a coach. He liked coaching, but he had started to take graduate classes at, in Tucson on sports management, and he was sure that's where he was going. He had no chance at a at an NBA career. Get real, you know that was, it was it was like college recruiting all over again. <laughs> other <laughs> people, other people were getting uh, that attention. He was on a team with. Uh, Sean Elliott and Tom Tolbert and these guys, uh, other pe- a lot of other people. There's several NBA players off that team. Uh, Steve had no chance. He's not an NBA guy, and he's the first to admit it. And then he has a senior season where he starts to think, you know, maybe this can happen. Maybe I'll get lucky. And you know what his goal was? God, it would be great if I could get a year or two out of an NBA career. <laughs> 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 and And that's how things kind of evolved, and that's been one of the constants uh, for much of his life, that this is a guy that sort of had the underdog status. Obviously not since he's been at the Warriors, uh, but all of this stuff kind of came from nowhere. Nothing was handed to him, and you're right. He went into the pros much like he showed up at Arizona, uh, all the way, in fact, to the point that when he was drafted by the Suns, uh, who is the guy that's determining much of his future? Kevin Johnson again, uh, because KJ was with the Suns then, and Steve had to hope that that KJ would not play a couple minutes a night. <laughs> it just <laughs> didn't happen because Kevin was really good, and so Steve played a year in uh, in Phoenix, and he got traded to Cleveland, and that's where things really took off for him. He was able to show he was a three point shooter. Uh, certainly not a point guard. He was a shooter. Yeah. And that's where things kind of took off for him, and he ranked among the leaders in three-point percentage, and and that's where things started to build for him. Well, you know, it's an example of uh, things have to fall in place for, for some guys to be successful, and a lot of things fell into place for him, and he took advantage of it to, to his credit. And I think all his experiences kind of prepared him for that and later prepared him to be in the front office and be a head coach and, be a worldly guy in a game that was becoming a worldwide game, uh, very much so in the NBA you know, by the time we got to the 90s. But, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, there are a lot of things that I know Northern California Bay Area fans know about Steve. I'll throw you a little off-speed pitch here. Is, is there something that uh, a lot of fans don't know that's in the book that, that maybe you want to throw out there? I think that there's there's a fair amount of things that people don't know. Maybe it's just uh, putting things into context, uh, not so much uh, a fact or an anecdote. Uh, there's some of those that are in there. I, I hope that there's some. I I know that there's stories that people have not heard before, but I okay. think I think some of the most interesting things that people don't know about are just the way his life came together and to put it all into context about, um, here's one bottom line. None of this was ever supposed to happen. <laughs> uh, all the way yeah. to the beginning. His parents were never supposed to meet. <laughs> uh, Malcolm Kerr was headed to, uh, to England, to Oxford, for grad school when a st- student from Occidental, Anne Zwicker, was going to take a year abroad and go to American University in Beirut. And only because Malcolm got a very bad case of arthritis, it's something that, that stayed with him for many, many years and bothered him a lot certain years, 
because the onset arthritis came on so bad before that year, uh, he ended up staying at, with his family in Beirut and taking his graduate classes at American University, meets Anne's Wicker, they get married. And that's, so it was a fluke that his parents met. Uh, he had mm. no chance of getting a scholarship to Arizona. He knew that he was not good enough to play D1. And then he gets the scholarship, and it turns into one of the greatest things to ever happen to him. Uh, he had no chance to play for the Bulls. He couldn't even get on the court with uh, the Orlando Magic, who had made the lottery the season before. He couldn't play for a 41-41 and 41 team. And now he shows up and thinks he's going to get on the court uh, with a team with Michael Jordan, B.J. Armstrong, and John Paxson. And then that works out. Go all the way through his life. There are so many times you could say, this is fate. It's crazy that this even happened. Look at even the Warriors' job. He oh, had, yeah. He had accepted a job with the Knicks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when we talk about none of this was supposed to happen, he wasn't supposed to be coaching the Warriors. He wasn't supposed to be playing for the Bulls, which turned his career around. He wasn't supposed to be at Arizona, which turned his life around. It's just crazy when you look at the fate and the luck that he had and then how he took advantage of that luck, because nothing's been handed to him, as we talked about before. Yeah. The situations were, were real flukes, like we just kind of ran down. But he's the guy that made it happen because he's smart and nobody was going to outwork him, and he always put a priority on preparation. Uh, it, it's just everything in context, it's a bizarre story that I don't know uh, if people realize the craziness that has gone on in this guy's life uh, that you can write a book about him and Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, and Stephen Curry are in there, but so are easy connections with Kim Jong-un and North Korea and Yasser <laughs> Arafat in the Middle East. And uh, obviously Barack Obama and Donald Trump, but going all the way back to Ronald Reagan. He's, he's in the mm-hmm. Oval Office before his, uh, Steve's, before Steve's uh, sophomore year of college. It's just amazing the path that he has taken. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a Forrest Gump story in that, you know, just all the people he's run into, and not like you mentioned, not only in sports and basketball, but just world leaders. And, you know, I, I remember when he was introduced as the Warriors head coach and he came into the studio, and I was doing the show uh, with Tom that day, so we, we got to interview him in the studio. I'm almost embarrassed I, I asked this question now, but it was kind of going around with some question as to whether he'd be tough enough to deal with NBA players, even after all he'd been through, but you know, now as a coach. And I, I think he's kind of proven that point. And, and then to have to try to coach and, and get through what was a debilitating back injury and, you know, that's kind of been forgotten now over the last few years, but and I'm sure you can speak to this, Scott. Uh, he went through hell for a couple of years. He's been through hell on so many different levels through his entire life when we talk about his unique path to getting here. Uh, I, I like the point that you brought up initially when you talk about would this guy be tough enough because I think that that speaks to his personality, and that's one of the underlying things about Steve that anybody who knows him knows it to be true. He's a really, really good guy. He's just a genuine, down-to-earth, mm-hmm. every, everything you hear about him. Now, you, you don't have to agree with his politics. 
to un- to accept this. He's just a great guy, and so it's fair to say, I don't know, is he too good of a guy? You know, is he really going to be able to to bust heads mm-hmm. on a player for not playing well? What's he What's he going to do with a, a, per- a, a wild personality like Draymond Green and things like that? So it was it was certainly a fair question, but. As we have seen uh, in his time with the Warriors, and as other people saw in previous in previous years of Steve growing up, he's one of the toughest guys you're ever going to meet. The, everybody in the Bay Area obviously knows about his uh, the back surgery that that led to all sorts of problems, and uh, I, he was much closer to walking away from quitting the Warriors than I think that most people realize, and that's something that's covered in the book. Uh, but the toughness he pushed through that uh he was uh, about to he was 1986 he was uh, at Arizona playing in the world championships team USA in Spain and he blows his knee out <laughs> and the <laughs> the doctor says yeah there's a good chance he's never playing again not just that it's a tough comeback but he's never playing again mm. and he's in tears uh, after the game, just at the thought of this, because basketball is his lifeline, and this is something else that we go into a lot in the book. Uh, it, it's not just something he enjoys. It's something that helps him get through the day and in, in these really tough days when he has it, like the back problem, like losing his dad. Basketball helped him. And so he was told, eh, you're, you're done. You're pretty much done. He came through that. He came through the back problems. Uh, he came through the, the the emotional anguish that was far worse than any knee injury uh, of losing his beloved dad. Uh, nobody, I think, can doubt Steve's toughness. Yeah, Scott, when you were talking about uh, him being such a great guy, I, I was really fortunate. I had the unique opportunity to work with him when he was at Turner, uh, and we worked pretty closely together on the NCAA tournament, which I'm about to embark on again, uh, where I do research. And, uh, you know, Steve was just so easy to deal with. I mean, he was one of the easiest people that I've ever worked with as far as broadcasting is concerned. But I've also seen another side of him, and w- without being able to divulge real details about it, uh, one of my other positions that I have there, I would listen to the coaches for the coaches' sound that they use, uh, you know, the, the State Farm uh, coaches' sound. And and Steve is so intense. I mean, so intense that you'd never figure that. You you just would. If you know him personally, you'd say, wait, who is this guy? And you realize how much, you know, he wants to win, loves the game, and, and it really, you know, came out in a different way that I had never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're right, crazy intense, and not only that, sometimes with a very, very short fuse. Yes. <laughs> he can be one of the most laid-back, easygoing, you know, hey, buddy, how you doing kind of guy. And if something strikes him the wrong way, usually having to do with with competition, uh, you know, ask the clipboard that got smashed (laughs) on the sideline at at Oracle. Uh, There's been other cases like that. Uh, He's very intense. uh, He's very fiery. And best of all, and I think that this is one one of the really great things about him, he's really genuine. There's no phony about him um when he's thrilled you're gonna know it he'll joke around he doesn't take himself too seriously but he takes the job seriously 
Um, when he's mad, you're going to know it because he doesn't care what it looks like on the sideline. <laughs> he doesn't care that he was in tears in front of thousands of people before a game uh, or that he, the other times that he's cried. Uh, he's just, he's real. And uh, I think that that's one of, the, one of the reasons that he connects with people so well. And don't underestimate that because that's been one of the real one of the real uh, primary reasons behind his success is how he relates to people from different backgrounds, whether it's somebody who came up the long way, uh, a guy like, like Draymond who had to dig for everything, or guys who had it, I don't want to say easy, but you grow up as the son of an NBA player, you're going to have certain privileges that other people don't, like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. And he connects with these guys and everybody. Yeah, now, now that's uh, you know also being played out with a 19-year-old in James Wiseman. Uh, you know, one of the best parts I thought of that documentary, The Last Dance, uh, was when they talked about the Steve Kerr fight with Michael Jordan. And you get into great <laughs> detail about that. And, and talk about that being a, a turning point, really, because uh, Michael Jordan now looked at Steve Kerr differently after that fight that they had. And, you know, Steve Kerr ends up with a black eye out of the deal. But, but he'd earned uh, Michael Jordan's trust. Uh, how important was that moment for Steve Kerr uh, over the course of his career? That was everything. Um... He was going to be on the Bulls anyway. He had proven himself. It was it was amazing timing. He showed up expecting he would be one of Michael's backups, and then a few days later, about a week later, Michael retires, <laughs> which is like gulp. But also, it became an unexpected opportunity for Steve to get a lot more minutes than he ordinarily would have. And so he proves himself to Phil Jackson and to Scottie Pippen and to the organization. And so then Michael returns, and Steve gets to sort of ride those coattails as one of Michael's wingmen, the guy that can hit a shot to help take some of the defensive pressure away from Michael and Scottie. But it's, it's another one of those examples when you talk about this guy with his fascinating life. Uh, he has a long history of taking these bad moments and having it turn out to be one of the best things to ever happen to him. Uh, college recruiting, as we said, completely unwanted. Uh, to end up at Arizona was one of the best things to ever happen to him. He met his wife. Uh, he, he built a career. Uh, he met several friends uh, who remain his friends, several people who remain his friends to this day. The knee injury at the World Championships that we mentioned, he ended up having to redshirt what would have been his senior season he comes back that next year, 87-88, Arizona is much better. Sean Elliott is better. All the people around him, Anthony Cook, Tolbert, all these other guys, Arizona goes to the Final Four. That wouldn't have happened uh, in his initial, in his original, what would have been his, his senior season. But because he got that redshirt year, it turns into this great thing. Uh, he gets traded to the Orlando Magic. Uh, he's terrible. They, they gave up a second-round pick to get him and ended up thinking we overspent. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes into free agency and is not getting any offers. He's talking about retiring uh, after that season. Because if somebody had given him an offer in July or August or early September, a guaranteed deal, certainly a two-year deal, he would have jumped at it. Uh, because no offers came, he ended up 
he ended up going to the Bulls for the minimum. Again, one of the best things to ever happen to him. Um, he wanted Steph Curry, as ever. I think this story's been told a million times, but it, when we talk about putting Steve's life story into context, this is another one. When we talk about bad things turning into good, the Phoenix Suns and general manager Steve Kerr were sure that they had arranged to trade with the Warriors to get, Steve, uh, to get Steph Curry on draft night. Now, how is life different for a lot of people <laughs> if, if Steph ends up on the Phoenix Suns instead of the Golden State Warriors? And among those people include Steve Kerr, because uh, not getting uh, Steph when, he's GM, when Steve is GM of the Suns became one of the best things to ever happen to coach Steve Kerr, as we saw in the long run. So the Michael Jordan fight is a perfect example of that. Uh, he gets clocked. He, he, he makes a comparison that it was like a velociraptor in Jurassic Park just pouncing him and mauling him. <laughs> it, it was over very fast. It was, it was, it was probably Michael barely broke a sweat uh, to punch Steve out. And yet, in the long run, as you said, Joe, one, it, it, it gave Steve a credibility with Michael Jordan that helped tremendously and helped the team moving forward. And, and speaking of moving forward, Scott, I mean, all these great experiences had all the success he's had with the Warriors, and now here they are in, in sort of this, this, this netherland where they're waiting for Clay to come back. I mean, he blew out his Achilles. That was pretty much the season for the Warriors. But Steph is still in peak mode. He's just about as good as he's ever been. But you've got this kind of odd roster around him. A nice foundation, but, you know, you're building a house with, with popsicle sticks and, and, you know, also young players who are still learning how to play in this league, uh, including James Wiseman. And so they're, they're kind of like, all right, we're competing for a playoff spot. We're trying to develop young players. It's kind of a, a tricky season for Steve. And, and at the same time, I, I, you know, he's not the kind of guy who's going to sweat everything, but it's an unusual situation. And I, I just uh, want to get your perspective on how you think he handles this going forward. Well, I think what he's done so far has been, has been terrific. Uh, it's been the only thing he can do, which is to focus – and this obviously goes back to last season as well, because without uh, without Clay then and missing the other guys for so long, and then the season turns crazy as it did for everybody because of the virus, uh, all he can do is provide some of that leadership he's been known for since college, uh, some of that direction. And I think one of the things that people maybe have gotten to see about Steve through all of this um, he loves to coach. This is not a roll out the ball uh, mm-hmm. and let somebody else do the heavy lifting. He loves the X's and O's. He loves uh, the camaraderie and the conversations, uh, the bus rides and the practices and the hotels and uh, the locker room after you win, especially. Nobody likes to lose, but uh, he's had to deal with the losing, and I think that most people would tell you from a personality standpoint, nobody's going to handle this better than Steve because he's always going to focus on the positive. He's always going to be looking to the bigger picture, and he's always going to be realistic. Um, he knew that they weren't going to win the championship last year. Uh, I think he realized it was a big setback, uh, and he said as much. It was no secret. Um, 
but he's this, this year without Clay. But he still said that there's a lot to be gained. There can still be some steps forward, step forward to be made. Um, great players like Steph Curry, project players like James Weissman, and he had the challenge of bringing it all together. And I think that I think he's done a really good job. I think the big disappointment, as you ask about moving forward, would be if they never get a, another good shot at a long run. If there's another injury early next season, for example. Um, that would I, I think that would be the disappointment. I think what Steve wants and what everybody else wants is is another chance uh, to get this band together with Steph and Draymond and Clay and and the supporting cast and give it another run. Yeah, yeah, and I think that window, if they're healthy, is a couple of years. Uh, you know, I mean, LeBron is still great at 36, but I I, I don't know how much longer for Steph. Hopefully a couple more years. Hopefully the same for Clay and for Draymond. And, uh, of course, Steph is coming in the last year of his contract as well. It seems to me that they want to load up this team for for that last run. And part of that is they they might get two lottery picks. So that's that's going to play into it as well. It's going to be very interesting. And, And I'll know... That it's that it's on for real if if Steve sacrifices another whiteboard, <laughs> <laughs> then you'll know that they're in uh, finals yeah. mode. That that they that's think right. That's right. State's you not gotta, as high this year. That's <laughs> good. You got to read the tea leaves or you got to read the clipboards. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, Scott. When I think about Steve Kerr, I think about a guy who's candid genuine, you know, not phony. These are some of the things I really love about him. Self-deprecating, too. I mean, you know, you think about that time when he was out and the Warriors were on their way to the 73-win season and Luke Walton is coaching and, you know, they have this great record. What was it, like 46-4? and And, you know, and he's just making jokes about it. I mean, some people would be really insecure about a situation like that, but Steve Kerr is not an insecure guy. The farthest thing from it, and that's one of the things that really – uh, drew Warriors management to Steve. He's a guy that they that they wanted to talk to for the job. Um, he was high on their list from the beginning. He told them he was pretty far down the road with with Phil Jackson and the Knicks, and he needed to see that through so that the Warriors got the message right away that they probably didn't have a chance to get Steve Kerr. But when it turned out that they did, and they had a meeting in Oklahoma City where Steve was working a, a TNT game, that the Warriors management went there and they did a an interview, and they were blown away in so many different ways, including that this guy was so secure and that when he talked about the assistant coaches that he wanted to have on his staff, there were several guys, a couple guys that he mentioned who could be his eventual replacements if things <laughs> went bad. If things went bad with um, with Steve and as, as a rookie head coach, that they've got. Uh, these guys there with experience, and that really jumped out to Warriors brass, um, partly because they just loved Steve's personality, knew him a little bit. Uh, Bob Myers was an agent who had uh, a client when Steve was GM of the Suns. He knew Joe Lacob a little bit. They had some mutual friends, golfing buddies, and so they hung out a little bit. So they knew him, but the other part was that the the Warriors had just come out of this what they saw as a mess with Mark Jackson. And mm-hmm. it was enti- it was it was a personality issue and one of the things that bothered them so much about Mark was that they saw him as very insecure. And then they get this guy who's supremely secure 
and that jumped out to him. And you're right. Uh, he, he'll joke about himself before anybody else has a chance to. He'll joke about other people. He'll kind of he, he he's very good at, at making jabs, but there's never a doubt uh, about how he feels his confidence level. And that's one of the interesting things as we talk about his story arc and his life. This is a guy that, as a player, didn't have any confidence for the for the longest time for many years. His whole thing was, geez, if I if I could just scratch out one more paycheck. Well, we'll have enough money I can go into coaching somewhere and I'll be able to provide for my family. He shows up to coach the Warriors, and on day one, he's got an incredible level of confidence. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, and he's not, yeah. A, he's not afraid to put out his opinions, political opinions, uh, when there have been shootings. You know, he has definitely come out uh, for gun control, uh, even got into a little back and forth with President Trump that you detail in the book. And you have to really admire uh, a guy who has that kind of guts, uh, you know, when it's outside of basketball, because you know, that's something that's really new uh, for, for a lot of athletes and coaches. Uh, we have not really seen that uh, when you go back in the day. Uh, that wasn't something that uh, coaches would do. It would be frowned upon. But Steve Kerr is part of that sort of that new wave of uh, people who are just not afraid as far as putting out their political opinions. That's one of the other changes in his life. He's a guy that's always been very aware, very smart. He understands the world around him. Again, lived in the world around him. Uh, he would sit at the dinner table at the fam with the family dinner table and talk about Middle East politics. This is a, this is a guy that doesn't want to be in a life where everything is you know how do you how do you handle the pick and roll. Uh, <laughs> and for the longest time, he just sort of kept that to himself and in private conversation. And it's only been in the last few years that he has evolved to the point where he would talk about it when he was asked. As you said, he wouldn't shy away from the topics. Uh, but it, that grew into, in a changing Steve Kerr, of wanting the conversations and encouraging them and practically begging people at the finals to ask him about a gun control issue or different things like that. Um, he. It's something that that's very important to him. A lot of that is the Phil Jackson influence. A lot of that is the Greg Popovich influence because both yeah. of them took that same approach of let's make sure let's not just allow the real world to get into the locker room. Let's make sure that it does. They would both bring it up uh, issues going on in in society, uh, even sometimes just goofy stuff with movies, and other times very serious stuff like presidential elections and. and and gun control and different things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that that's definitely a big part of his his life. He's a well-rounded adult. You know, like you say, he's, he cares about the world, and you know, his personal experiences have certainly uh, informed his opinions as well. And then he's got the sense of humor on top of that. And I'll throw out this little story from the from the '15 finals, and I was there in Cleveland for those games, and uh, they had fallen behind the uh, Cavaliers two to one. Uh, there was some discussion about changing the starting lineup, and uh, I think he at one point said he wasn't anticipating changes. Exactly. Uh, taking, yeah. taking questions from fans in the postgame show about this, and I said, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's the move they can make is start Iguodala. Well, that's what they do. Iguodala ends up being the finals MVP, but after that uh, game four that they won, somebody asked about it. Yeah, hey, you said you weren't going to make any lineup changes, and he just said, well, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> And the other, his sense of humor coming through at all times, they're on the verge of playing this 
this game that could uh, send them that much closer to elimination. And he's saying he's making the risky move of of a lineup change that late in the season is pretty unusual unless it's forced upon yeah. a coach by an injury. It was actually that it came in a suggestion from Nick Uren, who is now right. in, in the front mm-hmm. office, and at the time I think was. I think his title was special assistant or assistant to, to the coach or something like that. And he comes up with this theory and passes it to Luke Walton. Luke passes it to uh, Steve at the coaches' meeting early the next morning. And it's before the game, and Steve, you know, with all the pressure in the world on his shoulders, if the Warriors lose, they're in big trouble. Uh, they're on the road. Everything can go completely wrong. And he, t- and he turns to Nicky Wren and he says, if this goes right, I get the credit. If this goes bad, it's on you. You get the blame. <laughs> so he is—he is completely unfazed by pressure. You know these relationships. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, having a relationship with Steph Curry that just seems to really work well. Uh, you know, the superstar player who uh, has taken to Steve Kerr really right away, and, and that wasn't easy, I'm sure, when Steve first took over because you know a lot of these players still liked Mark Jackson. And then you know you have Draymond Green and his strong personality, and, and the fact that he flies off the handle and you know gets ejected from games or suspended during the finals, and dealing with that and the whole Kevin Durant situation, all of that. You think about how. He had to handle all of that and, and came through with flying colors to have the Warriors go to five straight finals. One of the things that Steve has always said as once he got into coaching was that coaching is not just the X's and O's, and it's not just the practice plan, and it's not just what play do we run coming out of the timeout with 1.3 seconds to go and down one. So much of it is how you deal with people. And this is as we were talking a few minutes ago, there are not going to be very, very many people who deal with people better than Steve. He just connects. There's such a genuine feel to him, and it's because he's real. And when he connects with people, he's not schmoozing anybody. Uh, That would be phony, and and a lot of guys would see through that, and Steve would, or any coach, would get exposed. But why it works for Steve because it's genuine and it was the same way when he was a general manager and uh, it was the same way when he was a player and that's one of the reasons why he played so long uh, as a as a role player it's not like this was a guy that was a superstar and and was able to squeeze out a final few years as as the gas tank was was dropping to empty he fit into so many different locker rooms when you when you think about the bulls and the competitive nature, but all the fighting that was going on <laughs> with uh-huh. with the championship bulls, and he goes from there to the exact opposite, the Spurs. You know the tranquility with uh, you know Tim Duncan, that wild man who would get on a plane wearing shorts and flip flops. What a what a maniac! You know <laughs> he goes to the most. Scandalous. He goes from the craziness to the to the most sedate, chill organization in the world. After that, where does he go? The Portland Trailblazers or the Jailblazers? You know, when every, all, all hell is breaking loose uh, with the players in that locker room, and Steve fits into all of them really, really well. And that, I think, 
is exactly what you're seeing now all these years later, and Steve Kerr is the coach. He connects with people, he relates to people, and that helps him become a better coach. Well, I don't think Steve remembers this, but uh, after they won in 15 and saw him after, after the uh, celebrations, and I just said, well, not bad for a Western League guy. Uh, so <laughs> from back in the Pally days to all the things he's done, it really is a great story. And, and like you said, it's not just a, a sports story, it's just a life story. And uh, I'd imagine, you know, there's a lot of research, I'm sure, but in some ways maybe this was an easy book to write because the, the subject matter was so good. There was a lot of material that was already out there. Uh, I was fortunate to talk to so many people, more than 100 people, who were, were very giving with their time and their thoughts, and some of them are, were, were reaching far into the Wayback Machine to go back a long time, and, and some were talking about much more recent uh, memories and developments. Uh, but it, it was, it was uh, a lot to sort through new material, old material, to sort of bring it together. Uh, mm-hmm. But I loved it. I, I hope, I really hope it comes through um, how much I enjoy doing this and that I, I did a, an accurate job of sort of revealing who this guy is and how he got here and how what happened to him in the 1980s or the 1990s matters in the 2020s and, and helped shape this guy who has made such a difference uh, in the NBA, more than anybody could have ever imagined, and certainly a million times more than he ever would have imagined. Yeah, yeah. It, it is really a great story. I'm really looking forward to, to reading the book, Scott, and I know fans will uh, as well. I, I You know, I, you're a great writer, and I'm sure it'll be good stuff, and I would highly recommend it for Hoops fans. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I hope everybody does enjoy it. Yeah, it, it is great. It's a fascinating book, uh, Scott, and I, everybody is going to love it. It's a, it's one of those uh, must-reads, not just for Warriors fans, but just any sports fan will love this book. And uh, we've come full circle, Scott. I mean, from the Daily Trojan to you coming on this podcast with me, I really appreciate it. I know Ray does as well. That's enough of the Trojan love <laughs> <laughs> and and we'll talk to you again about the Warriors at some point down the road. I'm still trying to keep up with you, Joey. That's the, that's the bottom line. That's Scott Howard Cooper, author of the book, Steve Kerr, A Life, and that will be coming out on June the 15th. Ray and I will be back again in a couple of weeks on Dubs OT, and we'll talk about the Warriors at the trade deadline. Thanks for listening to the Dubs OT Warriors podcast. Join Joe Castellano and Ray Woodson again next week on thesportsvirus.com.